Well, it's NIAC 2024 season, and that means I'm going to try to interview every single NIAC recipient that I can get my hands on. And these are, of course, NASA's Advanced Innovative Concept Awards, where they give tens of thousands of dollars to ideas that are out of the box, the kinds of science fiction ideas that we've all been hoping for. And so the first interview that I've got here is with Marshall Eubanks from Space Initiatives, and he and his team won a grant to explore the idea of sending a swarm of tiny probes to Proxima Centauri. And the sending part really isn't what they're focused on. It's more about how can you make these things communicate and act as a swarm to control their own uh, movements so that they can then be able to send a signal back home to Earth of whatever it is that they're seeing. So enjoy this interview with Marshall Eubanks. Marshall, it's it feels like it's been forever. But it's, it's only been a couple of months since we actually talked. it feels like just a couple of days ago, almost, you know, in yeah. some ways. Um, yeah, you've been really busy. Well, I have been. I still am. Yeah, um, it's funny. I mean, we did our interview. Yeah, like maybe two months ago. And and I didn't know that you had applied for a night grant. I guess you kept it close to your chest. And then we got that the big was, announcement the 14th this week. I've applied to the 14th time you've applied yes, tonight. I believe so. And so after the first 10 or so, you kind of just, you know, you forget. Well, no, you don't forget. But it's just like it's not noteworthy. It's not like you're going to say, oh, yeah, I just applied. for. Yeah, no, this is it. Like, you know, I, well, I yep. did it again this year. And that's. It's like that astronaut who got rejected 12 times or whatever from, from yeah. NASA. I don't know if you saw that movie. It was now, actually, I was part of one winning proposal out of that. But I wasn't the PI. I wasn't the fellow. Yeah. So. But, that, but that process of, of applying on a regular basis, like it must really help you sharpen your idea. Well, Ron Turner told me – Ron Turner is or I, I think still is the like the project scientist for NIAC. And he told me that they – that. I think he said a majority, but a substantial fraction of their winning proposals is not their first rodeo. They've yep. applied before. And when he told me that, I felt like, well, okay, you know, we've got some good ideas. We'll just, you know, yeah, make them better. But in our case, I think the real driver there was that we were working with Breakthrough. And so we were right. part of the Breakthrough Communications team. We had a lot of feedback. We had a lot of, you know, it, it sharpens the the knife, so to speak. It makes the intellect sharper to get feedback. And Yeah. And and we'll talk about that that sort of that partnership and how you're working with them. And that's breakthrough Starshot, of course. So all right. So then what's the idea? What's your big idea? Well, this is frequently called a solar sa a laser sale proposal, but it isn't really we're not, we didn't propose anything about laser sales per se. We're trying to figure out how to fly a mission to Proxima Centauri that gets good science, good data and a good data return. And the solution we've come up with, and the only solution we see there is swarming, is to have lots of probes. And if it's okay, I'll say just a word about why you would do a swarm here of this form. We think that in the next 20 years or so, we can develop lasers of sufficient power. And we're talking 100 gigawatts combined power. So that's a lot of power. And put them in an array so they can focus all together and so on. And that's about the limit of our technology, we feel like, in the next few decades. But that'll be a stretch, but we think we can do it. With that, we can send a 10-gram probe to Proxima Centauri in a reasonable amount of time, right, 0.2c. That's not a lot of mass. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's a lot less than this. Um, you know, it's, it's not a lot of mass. And a couple of pieces of paper. Yeah, it's yeah. so how do you but what's the cost of that? Well the biggest cost of that is almost certainly going to be the infrastructure. It's building the lasers, it's putting the lasers, you know, you're going to have to have a, a big site, you're going to have probably up on a mountain or something or maybe even on the moon, you're going to have to you know clear the site, put the telescope, a bunch of telescopes there, put the lasers in them, phase them all together so they're all in you know, that's going to cost a lot. Once you do all of that, launching 10, you know, each probe is you know, consistently in space exploration, mass tells you cost. You know, people try a lot to make cheap spacecraft, but the way to make cheap spacecraft is to make small spacecraft. You know, CubeSats are much cheaper than larger spacecraft, not because they're like inherently, no, it's just they're smaller. And 
And that just seems to be almost an iron rule. If you want to make it cheaper, you got to make it smaller. So, you know, our CubeSats maybe $50,000, $100,000. We feel our probes, once they're manufactured in bulk, will probably be substantially cheaper than that. So, and we're not alone in having this idea. If you fire one, you sh- shoot one off, you should shoot off a lot. And the question then is, well, what can you do with that? And I mean, yeah, one obvious thing is just redundancy. We don't know what the th- risks are going to be. We don't know how much dust there's going to be, how many meteorites or whatever. And of course, at 0.2C, hitting even a tiny speck of like dust you could hardly see would maybe kill your spacecraft. So we don't know. We don't know what the environment is going to be. Now, after we fly a few, we will, but we don't know right now. So maybe we'll have a very high loss rate. 99. I've heard people say 99%. Well, if you launch a 1,000 spacecraft or probes, I don't one percent of a thousand is ten, so ten gets you something at least. So pe- lots of people have had this idea. This is not new to us. But we were trying to figure out the other thing is, well, there's two problems, and the big problem is communication. How do you get a reasonable amount of data back? And there's been a lot of sort of discussion and argument about this, but I feel like a fundamental problem is you're sending data, you're near a star, you're sending data back by lasers. We think lasers are the way to do it. There's been some discussion, is it 400 nanometers, which is sort of blue near UV, is it 350 nanometers maybe, or is it up at 1,000 nanometers a micron, the IR? We'll figure that out. But the stars behind you, other stars are behind you, the galaxy is behind you, the Alpha and Proxima Centauri are near the galactic plane, so they have lots of stars behind you. You will have photons from the universe coming through your system. And when you talk about a system where you, you know, I mean, I have set through presentations which seriously talked about one photon per month. One, the good put of one photon, you know, good put is the actual photons you want to get as opposed to other photons that are just noise or, you know. The good put of one, and, and I just felt like that's too low. You're, you know, you're really taking a risk of never getting any good data back because you'll find that, oh, the, the, the background starlight or whatever is just a little higher than you thought. And it'll, you know, you'll have a thousand photons a month from that. And here's your one photon, how you find it. Um, and so the idea we came up with is what we call operational coherence or photonic coherence sometimes. You, you, instead of having them in phase, I think that's a bridge too far, you might say, because of the, the phase of these signals. To put them in phase would require knowing where you are and having your clocks aligned, all that kind of stuff, well below a micron. In fact, probably 10 nanometers or something. That's just not realistic. That's- would that be like the, the sort of the reverse of an interferometer? That would be an interferometer. That would be a well. That would be a sending interferometer. Yeah, sending interferometer. Then you then a receiving interferometer. Yeah. Well, remember, yeah. electromagnetism works in time reverse. The equations are time symmetric. So anything you can do to receive, you can do in theory to send, um, and vice versa. Um, but the fa- if the phase is too hard, but what you can do is you can do photonic coherence. And, and basically, the idea is: let's say that I well in this game in the, in these laser in this laser communication, always you're talking about, you have what, you know, typically we call buckets, bins. You want to have your photon, the good photons are in a particular bucket. What's, what defines a bucket? What's well, a short window of time? It's a short window of frequency. Maybe it's a polarization. Maybe it's a few other things, but it's the time and frequency or time and wavelength are the two things. So maybe you say, I want, you know, I'm going to arrange things so that all the photons I want to receive will be in this bucket that's a nanosecond long and a nanometer in wavelength and any other photon I'll ignore any other photons I get I'll ignore and maybe you won't know which nanometer which nanosecond it'll be in or which nanometer it'll be in but you just look for correlation you say you know I'm going to collect enough photons so I can say yes all the photons are in these buckets and you can see how in pulse what's called pulse position modulation you just say I have two buckets each time I send, you know, one is a zero, the other is a one, that sort of thing. And you could do more complicated, you will do more complicated things than that, but that's the essence there. You're just saying I have, you know, I'm going to put either, you know, it's like putting coins in, in, a, in a slot or something like that. If it's a one I want to send, I put them in here. And if it's a zero I want to send, I put them there. 
And then on the other end, you have to do, you have to collect enough data to say, yes, here's the slots. Once you sync it, then you're good to go and you can start receiving data. And, and sort of and, practically to sort of understand that, like, like all the spacecraft are sending at the same time? No, because they're not in the same plane. You want to have, you, it's like Phil Spector's old wall of sound. You want to have a wall of photons, literally a wall. A nanometer is a foot. It's about this wide. And so if you have your, your if you have an array of probes that are maybe 100,000 kilometers across, you're sending a wall of photons that's, you know, a foot wide and 100,000 kilometers. That's a pretty narrow pizza. If you think about it, it's like a gigantic, you know, you know earth moon sized pizza. And, but yes, but in other words, like say you're in Vancouver, I believe, or near Vancouver, you're in Canada. I'm here in, in West Virginia. If we were going to do this, say going the other way, you might be closer to Proxima. Well, we wouldn't see Proxima because the Earth is in the way, but ignore that. You would be. You might be further away from Proxima than I am, and so you have to send before I do. Right. So that we're. But the goal is that aligned. the recipient receives a flood of photons yes. coming at at with precisely the same time. So the, the, the recipient sees this wall of photons as yep. if it all came from a super powerful source, and so now right. you see what we're doing here. We're we're taking. The thing we can't do, we could maybe do this by sending a thousand kilogram probe, right? Right. Once with a powerful laser just pointing with back. A powerful Earth laser and, and a meter yeah. telescope, and we actually we actually synced that for an earlier proposal. And yeah, something like that, a kilowatt laser and a meter telescope, you could get you know, aim it at the Earth, and you could get a decent signal. And I forget the numbers, but you know, kilowatts, a kilo kilo samples a second or something like that, kilobits a second. Um, but we can't send that. We don't have the technology. We think we won't have the technology to send that. But in principle, you could send a thousand or ten thousand smaller probes and have them do the same thing. And we think a thousand is probably a practical limit. I say a thousand. It's unlikely to be exactly a thousand, but you know, because well, you're going to have to put this sender, this laser, the the beamer laser somewhere. Wherever you put it, it's likely to only be able to see Proxima Centauri some of the time. The Earth will get in the way. You put it on the Moon. The Moon will get in the way. You know the seasons. The Sun might get you know, and so you will have a window where you can send, and other windows where you can't send. And so the question is then, well, you know, how long can I send? How long is my window? Can I join other windows together, um, and then collect all this stuff? I mean, in a very loose sense, this is what people have done with you know navies and you know the like. When you hear about a convoy. Like in World War II, you know, you had convoys crossing the Atlantic. Well, that's how a convoy is co is collected. Everybody arranges to get in a certain place at the same time, and then they go on together. Right. And, and so you you know your laser is going is going to be shooting at individual spacecraft one at a time, and they're going to be getting accelerated away from Earth towards Proxima Centauri. Yes. So and, already and they're. Quickly. I mean, th right. a few thousand seconds, maybe something like that. Wow. For each yeah. one. So they'll right? all be floating in space. The laser will go off, hitting them all within a few thousand seconds, and then they're all on their way. But they will be delayed in time from our perspective. In, yes. And in, so you will send the, right. you send the fast, the first ones a little slower than the later ones. And if you think about it, so you're sacrificing a little bit of your velocity potential to get the things to line up. You're making a few sacrifices. To, the, the, to do the fine control, we want to use the drag and the interstellar medium, even though that's less than a particle per cubic centimeter, which is an incredibly fine vacuum. You're going at 60,000 kilometers a second, which is 60 million meters a second, which is 6 billion centimeters a second. So you're getting a nice bath of these things. And there, there's a drag there, and you can use that drag. Right, and that drag is 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 in is theoretical right now purely based on what's been hit you know what's been received by the voyager and so on so that's this is one of the questions you must have is what exactly is the drag and what effect do do different stars in different oh, regions yeah. yeah you know we know people have looked at absor stellar absorption line or the the, the line, absorption lines in stellar light from sun like stars and we know that there are clouds of stuff out there because they absorb at different velocities. Their absorption line's a little red shifted. You could say something about the velocity profile that way. 
we know, for example, that there's a there's a there's a cloud that we call the local interstellar cloud LIC. Maybe we are in that. We think either we're very near the edge inside or very near the edge outside. But Proxima is in a different cloud. So that's like we don't even know. Are we in the same cloud as Proxima? Are we in a different cloud? Is are we in the some? We don't know anything about how this. You know, these clouds are almost certainly ancient supernova remnants. Is my guess that in other words. You, um, 10 million years ago, whatever, there's a supernova, it pulls out all this gas, it creates a big bubble, and then the bubble just sort of like, you know, hangs around like a, a puff of dust or smoke, eventually it goes away. And and so then, uh, I'm assuming then each one of these probes is going to need to have a very accurate clock on board that is able to calculate its flight time and well, if maybe probes- knows... See, this is actually something we work through in some detail. Although I think, it, I think, frankly, it needs more work. When the probes are launched, they can talk to Earth. The Earth is not far away. The Earth has a big, huge beamer laser. It can talk to them for a long time, maybe the whole way, probably the whole way. But it can certainly, you know, either other lasers would work when you're close to Earth. So we can figure out where they are, and we can tell each probe where all the others are that way. So, we're, you know, it's all the probes talk to Earth. We find out where they are. We tell all the probes, the whole class, where all of them are. And then they have to come and join each other. And we think that the laser communication, the inter-probe laser communication, which in our nominal design is is in the IR, those lasers, um, will have a range of a few thousand kilometers. So in the beginning, they're going to be more spread out than that. So there's a, there's a fairly tough navigation problem here where you have to say, I'm going to like rendezvous with somebody and I don't quite know where they are. Right. And, and, and that's where you're using that interstellar medium as drag. You are, you are, each sail is turning itself slightly to try and bring the, bring the convoy back it's, together. Again. It's like a, it's like a sailing ship. You can tack, you know, to a yeah. degree, limited degree um, and, and so on. And, you know, there, one of the other NIAC proposals proposed using, um, uh, alpha decay is an accelerator. You probably interviewed the, that that group. Maybe we could use something like that. Maybe there's mm-hmm. other things we could use. We don't know. I mean, it's we don't care really in a deep level where the velocity change comes from, but we're going to need hundreds of meters a second to get everything together. And so, um, you know, that's got to come from somewhere. So, so. So let's talk about like the kind of bandwidth that you're looking at. I can answer that very simply. Our goal is to get a New Horizons level of data return per year. Right. And New Horizons, for people who don't know, was was really just a couple of bits per second. It was you know, three a, gigabits, three and a half gigabits per year, I think. Per year. Yeah. So it took per about year. 18 months for them to send home all the pictures from the flyby at the highest resolution before they'd finally emptied out the the buckets and and we're ready to start getting ready to take pictures of their next target. I believe before they were talking about maybe getting a few kilobits in a decade. Now that would be per probe, but it's not a lot. It's a picture sort of per decade. Um, we want to send back a lot more than that. And one of the, I mean, just objectively, New Horizons did a really good, good job describing the Pluto system. They got pictures of Pluto. They got pictures of Charon. They got pictures of the other moons. They got, you know, the transmission stuff where you could see the sun behind Pluto and that nice picture of the atmosphere. They got all of that stuff. And, you know, um, and, and you know, other data. They had the Lucy telescope and, you know, IR and UV and all this spectra. And, you know, they got quite a lot of data back in that three and a half gigabits. Byte. I think it's gigabytes, actually. But they got a lot of data back. And if we if we can do that with Proxima, um, we feel like we're going to be doing pretty good. And I have to tell you, there is competition here. If you talk to optical astronomers, which we have, they say, well, you know, by that point, we're going to have 100-meter telescopes, maybe in uh, optical telescopes, maybe in space, maybe on the ground. But we're going to have – so we can actually, you know, get like a few pixels of Proxima Centauri maybe or at least see it as a dot – but once you see it as a dot, you can do spectra, you can do all this stuff. And it's like, how can you compete with that? You know, how is this more efficient than that? Because after all, on Earth, you don't have to wait 20 years. You just take the picture or do the spectra or whatever. And um, 
I mean, maybe the solar gravitational lens would get you a picture of that of that quality, but but there's no comparison. And you look at the pictures from Webb of Europa and they're or or Titan, and you know they're fine. They're tiny little pictures, and then you compare them to what Cassini gave you. It's night and day. Yeah, it's a completely it's, different world. So, and so the no, same I can't imagine with Hubble and Pluto. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. I can't imagine even if Webb took a picture of of Pluto, it's not going to look anything like what New Horizons did. There's just no, there's nothing else but getting close. Like, but the other just, thing you can do is transmission. You can do transmission photography. You can do transmission spectroscopy. In other words, you have the light source between between you have the planet between you and the light source. So the light source might be the laser on Earth, the beam or laser, plenty bright enough to see. It might be the star, Proxima B. It might be some other star, potentially. It might be the, the probes. If they're close enough together, um, you know, they can shoot a laser between them and get data that way. And I did some work on what I call the, 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 the ephemeris of Proxima. And I think, at least for the initial mission, we will have a hard time knowing where Proxima B planet is when i mean because you know we have to shoot initially i mean we can't yes we'll have a limited ability to move around but just a limited ability we'll have to hit the target or not you know based on what we do from earth i don't think we'll do better than a hundred thousand kilometers i think that will be actually a fairly tough now remember you're you know you're 1.3 parsecs away so an, an, an astronomical unit is basically an arc second so if you say a hundredth of an astronomical unit, you're talking about 10 milliarc seconds. So, you know, we could probably do a milliarc second, which is a thousand of an astronomical unit. Um, and that's, well, you know, 150,000 kilometers. Right. So, you're ca- accounting for the movement of Proxima Centauri B, the movement of the star, our the movement of us, the movement of the laser. There's the, um, the, the orbit of the planet. Right. I mean, the orbit of the planet is not super well constrained right now. And all of this has to be predicted. You know, because you're shooting from Earth, you're four light years away. It's going to take you 20 years to get there. And that means roughly you have 24 years lead time. Right. You're 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 right now. If we're going to shoot today, we would say, well, I know where this Proxima B was. Well, today in my time saying, but that's really four years ago. And I'm going to shoot this probe. It's going to take 20 years to get there. So when it gets there, it's using data that was 24 years from the time it arrived. And um, and, and, and um, in astronomy, that's actually called the Romer delay because Romer used that kind of delay to, to determine the speed of light using the eclipses of the Jovian satellites. And I didn't know that term. So I, I get that question all the time where people are like, there can you know they like we know that Andromeda is moving towards us and we know that it's moving and so are we really seeing what it looks like or in the right place and I didn't know that, that was the term the Romer delay and so well you are- I mean that's because I mean the, if it's static it doesn't really matter like with Andromeda yeah it's moving towards us but you know we don't know what it should have looked like a million years ago so or two three million years ago so what does that matter but. When you have, once you start, you know, once you start dealing with times that are comparable to the delay or distances rather that are comparable to the delay, then all of a sudden, yeah, it becomes like something you got to take into account. And the, the, the Romer noticed that, you know, as Mars, sorry, Jupiter orbits around the sun, it gets closer to the earth and further away from the earth. And so the time delay from the, 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 the eclipses varies because of that. Um, and, but, but this is the kind of calculation that they would have had to have done with, say, Juno. They want to make sure they yeah. get the right insertion orbit into Jupiter. They got to calculate yeah. Jupiter's movement, Earth's movement, the spacecraft's movement to make sure that they're they're not they're not aiming for where Jupiter was. They're going for where it's and going. And it's the sort of thing you have to do with pulsar timing too. And the pulsars are like stars, and so in some ways, it's you know we we know how to do this, right? We've done this, you know, for distant stars. It's just they were pulsars as opposed to Proxima. But yes, and that's why we think the 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 the, the swarm should be a hundred thousand kilometers across, and that's these are rough numbers. They need to be refined. But if the swarm is a hundred thousand kilometers across, and if you can target to better than a hundred thousand kilometers, then somewhere in that swarm you're going to come close to the planet, and that's what we want to do. We want to have at least a few come close to the planet, and. 
there is an interesting question there because I think coming close to the planet, people pointed out that if, if the Proximans, if there are such a thing, did this to Earth, we probably wouldn't notice. We probably wouldn't notice, you know, pie plate, you know, pizzas, you know, large pizza box size solar laser sails coming through our system at point two C. We'd probably just never see them. But if one hit the atmosphere, we would notice. So, you know, do you want to have, you know, now it's not going to do any damage. It's not going to blow up the planet or anything. It wouldn't even hurt anybody on the ground. because. But do you want to, you know, have people, a civilization there saying, who's throwing, you know, 0.2C bullets at us? And what should we do about that? Yes, uh, yes. Now, w- when you talk about that idea of seeing the planet from within, say, 100,000 kilometers, I mean, that's closer than, say, standing on the moon. But what kind of a picture? Can you give me an example? When you think about all of the planets that have been taken in the solar system, all of the moons with various instruments, what's a picture that is it discovers images of Earth taken from the L1? You should be able to do something comparable to what the ISS could do. The pictures taken through the couple of the ISS. Wow. Now, I mean, that's a hundred. That's that's five hundred kilometers, not ten thousand. Yes, but I mean, we can have a bigger telescope. We can have a bigger aperture than the guys with the, you know, whatever cameras they have at the ISS. On your so, ten gram spacecraft? Yes. I mean, there's some amazing stuff. Now, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but there's some amazing stuff happening. And one of them is having flat Fresnel type lenses. Yes. That are really thin. That you could just, you know, you could have, and, and you can phase array them. So you can have multiple ones. And so you could have an, a, a phase array Fresnel lens that's, you know, like a tenth of a millimeter thick that's a meter across. And so that's And might even s- have value in, in you're shooting the laser through that Fresnel lens to help yes. accelerate the spacecraft. Yes. I mean, you could, the, one of the goals is to use that for the, you know, communications, but. You could also use it as a telescope. You can point it at the planet and set, take a picture. Now, there's an image blur issue here. You're going by a point two c but I think you could deal with that electronically because you will know what it is. You know, you will know very accurately what the the speed is, and so you'd have like a a push broom type approach. You know, where you're a lot of like LRO does push brooms, Mars reconnaissance orbiter. They all do push brooms. You know, where you have one line of sensors that. You know, you're moving along. Well, you could just like sweep that electronically somehow at whatever speed you're talking about. And there's a lot of work to do here, clearly. But I think there's no physical limits. So it should be, we should be able to do this. I mean, so you want to have, you're not going to get the whole planet to like a meter resolution, right? You don't, you won't have the ability to do that. You're going by, you know, but you should be able to get little patches where you have sort of, very high resolution and you get the whole planet at some resolution. And, you know, we've talked about, well, we don't know if this planet is sun synchronous. If it is sun synchronous, you'd probably want to get pictures of the backside with low light or something. And then there's the question of biosignatures and technosignatures. And I personally feel like a real, really, really, really compelling technosignature would be a picture of any illumination on the far side right in other words is it you see something like cities or oil refineries or or, or whatever on the far side i mean there's lots of light on the back side of the earth and um you know i mean so that that would be something that you could have a because the the question is always going to be you fly through and when you when you get to like is there life is there civilization anything like that there you go you fly through and obviously we're going to fly through more than one expedition i mean you know but the first expedition goes through and it takes a picture and it's like oh wow that looks interesting is that a coral reef or is that you know a volcano and you know, then people will argue until the next expedition <laughs> you know i mean that's that's how that is but if you flew by the backside and you said you know that sure does look like a los angeles down there <laughs> um, right Right, but um, later on you send the Proxima Volcano Explorer, which is yeah. one you know whole class of spacecraft perfectly designed for spotting volcanoes. The infrared and, and signals transmission from spectroscopy gives you an ability to look for gases in the atmosphere that are produced by biology or even by technology. 
Um, Freon is one of my examples, the chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah. That, you know, if you see the, now if you don't see them in the atmosphere, it doesn't mean there's no civilization, but if you see them in the atmosphere, it's a pretty good clue somebody's making them because there's no natural way that we know of to make them. And now, now, one of the sort of like the big things that I find, I mean, I kind of find it confusing. I get it, right? Like sending a spacecraft to Proxima Centauri is super exciting. And boy, wouldn't it be great? I mean, that's us living our Star Trek future. But yeah, and I'm not s- saying, by the way, that there is a civilization there. I'm just saying no, no, that's of course. one of the things we have yeah, to yeah. look at, you know? Yeah, why not? Can't hurt. It doesn't hurt to check. But, but you know, the our own solar system is a poorly understood place with plenty of places that we should be sending probes to explore and and it's like the going to proxima centauri that is the end of this gigantic technology chain where you've demonstrated all of this so i'm really interested in what are the near-term applications of the various pieces of this technology as we use it to explore the solar system? So, so tell me how we use this to just oh, well, look closer I to think, home. I think that that's really fascinating and really compelling even. Now, I said at the beginning, ours is, our proposal is not a solar sail proposal, a laser sail proposal either. You know, it's, we're about this communication and swarming and all like that. And so I actually sort of divided up to what you might say pre-laser and post-laser. Pre-laser is stuff we could do right now. So, for example, if we had the swarm working and we're thinking about how you might test it in Earth orbit, say, you know, with, with, you know, at the space station or being ejected from the space station or maybe on an Artemis rideshare mission or something like that. We've thought about all of that. You know, we've actually talked to people at NASA, Johnson, about an Artemis rideshare. We could carry along maybe a hundred of these guys, send them by the moon, you know, and then they go off into deep space and you, know, you never see them again. Um, we could do that now, and so you could you could say, well, we could look at all, we could look at any interesting potentially hazardous asteroid. If you find a PHA, oh gee, what kind of asteroid is it? Well, we could send maybe a maybe even a, I mean, if you're talking about like Apophis, a close approach like that, maybe even just a sounding rocket. But certainly, you could just send, you know, like a Pegasus or something like that, you know, to shoot. And of course, it has to get out of this Earth's gravity well, but, you know, but you're talking about very small, light payloads there. It's not going to be free, but it could be a lot cheaper. And it is the sort of thing also you could have just sitting around. Right. But right? I can imagine like a space based uh, mass driver that's loaded up with a thousand of these little probes and we it's actually, just turning with, around and just firing them at targets when it. With a colleague I'm not going to mention here because he's not part of this group, but we've we've thought about putting something, well, either a mass driver or a, um, you know, a little rocket propel thing up at this gateway that so many people complain about. You I know? love that. Um, but it's at the gateway. And so if anything comes really close to the earth, it's well positioned to just shoot off and go take a look at it. And, you know, and again... You're talking about maybe 10 kilograms of, of total mass or maybe one kilogram of total mass. I figure that the initial ones won't be one gram or 10 grams. They'll be probably more like 100 grams or you know something like that. But, but, but it is interesting to sort of think about that miniaturization. Like, like what is the smallest viable yes, yes. spacecraft, right? Well, you know, Zach Manchester you- has his little chipsets, which are like little credit card size things. And that was actually one of the things we were thinking of as well. You know, you can do it. It's credit card, you know, you can, that's kind of the size we're talking about, except we need the laser sales. And now that's pre-laser, right? Pre-boosting. Once you start testing boosting, which I think will happen, I mean, because, you know, the, the Navy is planning to try and do laser cannons that are at the megawatt level. And that's kind of the power you need to start playing with these things in space. So, you know, maybe we could work out where the lasers, when they're not shooting at, you know, people in the Red Sea, <laughs> They're shooting our guys up in space. I don't know. Um, but um, then you could, that that plus the ability to, you know, have photon coherence, which I think will not be trivial, but, you know, once you do it, you've done it and you can just use it. We could go anywhere. I mean, you know, Phil Lubin, has, who's part of the Breakthrough Group, has written a, several papers on this, and we could seriously have missions at 100 kilometers per second, which means you could get to Pluto in about, I think it's 380 days, 
Right. So a year. You, you catch a muamua. You, you visit the Voyagers. Umu. You could go to Sedna. You could go to yeah. Eris. You could go, you could go anywhere. Yeah, any right? Kuiper Belt. Now these are flybys, but still, you could. So you could then say, well, I'll just you know send a mission a year to somewhere, and I mean, and it would be fairly cheap. So it might be the sort of thing a university could do. A university could, or a you know, like I four IS Institute for Interstellar Studies that we're involved with. That's a charity. They can maybe get the money and send a mission to somewhere. And yeah, now it's a flyby. It won't tell you everything. You know, we're, we, you know, you could always send a bigger, more expensive spacecraft, but then it's more expensive. And if, you know, we, we, as you probably know, we have done a number of, of, uh, uh, Oumuamua one eye, uh, mission studies, and we could get to, we could get there if we wanted to. I mean, it kind of annoys me that certain people say, oh, it might be an alien spacecraft. Well, it's an alien spacecraft. Don't you think we should send something there and look at it and see what – and they're like, oh, no, that would be too hard. Well, like, But if you've got your, your mass-driving uh, chipset launcher in space and 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 then you just got a big long list of targets and you're like, oh, Muamua is up. Okay, sure. Why not? Buy you know, $10. Away goes the chipset. Yeah. You move on to the next one and and you've hit – Five, you know, you've gone after five thousand potentially hazardous hazardous asteroids. You've gone to every one of Jupiter's moons. Like, like at a, like when you think about, like, say the Lucy mission. I mean, it's so exciting because it's going to be seeing so many different objects. But that's order ten. Yeah, ten for we for hundreds of millions of dollars or order. 10. Yeah, I mean, there's a million asteroids with numbers. I think now or something yep. like that, and that's a lot of bodies that you know. Really, we don't know very much about most of them. And, and of course, people do other things. Yes, there'll be missions like Lucy, people doing occultations on Earth that can help tell you what their asteroid size is and all like that. You know, there's, there's lots of stuff you can do. People looking for satellites of asteroids, which tells you the mass. And, you know, there's, I'm not putting that stuff down at all, but I just think this is a really, really fantastic idea of, like, you know, getting to know the neighborhood, getting to know the solar system. Not just, yeah, we went to this one thing and, you know, it's like, no, we've really explored it. And when you start thinking about sending people out there and doing things, you know, like if you, if you ever watched the, the Expanse or read the books, you know, that's, this is a sort of precursor to all of that, if you think about it that way. Uh, if you, you never do that without actually exploring it first. And, and now, now, like your proposal specifically is, how does a swarm communicate its findings back to Earth? That but, and how does it cohere? How do you get and it? how does it bring itself to? Yeah, how yes. does it work as a team to you be able could to do view this? That work? is just an engineering prerequisite for the communication part, but but we think of that as a as a thing in and of itself. You'd like to do that, you know. You you you'd like the, you'd like to have it where the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And, and you could use that even if like, you're like going to a PHA that's a potentially hazardous asteroid that's really close where communication isn't a big problem, you know. I mean, it's a million kilometers away, you know, just, you know, get Goldstone to look at it or something. Right. So, so what do you think then are like the big outstanding issues? I mean, you mentioned the laser. So like give us a sense of like how many orders of magnitude more powerful lasers have to become before this kind of technology starts to become. And then also like the miniaturization and the not lighting your space, not melting your spacecraft into dust. Well, so what are are the big challenges right now for us to see light sail missions to Proxima Centauri? Right now, I think, that the the people who are doing lasers for um, uh, military use and the like, and industrial use, I think industrial lasers, you can buy industrial lasers that are a few hundred thousand watts. Now there's questions of coherence, there's questions of how often you can fire them. You know, it's, you know, I, we, I've had discussions about that. A lot of people are like, well, you know, you can't really do those, that with these lasers because of such and such. And it's like, okay, you know, but they're getting to, order a megawatt. So 100, 100 kilowatts to order a megawatt, you would need it to be continuous wave for at least, say, minutes, if not an hour. And to do Proxima Centauri, we want to have 100 gigawatts. So that's a factor of 100,000. 
Now that's a lot. Now, the one thing I will say, I have, a, I have some sayings. And one of my sayings is, you know, one order of magnitude is engineering, two orders of magnitude is, is um, physics, and 10 orders of magnitude is theology. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yep. To prove things by 10 orders of magnitude is kind of like you just got to pray. And, right. Um, just but five like orders of magnitude. But the thing is, that the difference there is, if you ha- if you you know if you really wanted to do it, if you said this is an important national goal or international goal, you could just you know if you if you have a megawatt laser, you could just buy a hundred thousand of them. Yeah, now, but but there must be like an, but, you know. an exponential. I mean, there must be an exponential growth curve that you could just yes, look at the at is. the growth curve and you can plot the date and you say you know whatever September twenty fifth. Well, they think twenty years. Now, I'm 20, not a laser guy. 45. You know, Phil right. would, would be a better guy to interview than me, but, you know, something like that. So, um, I mean, and you mentioned Slava's gravity telescope. I have a feeling that we'll get to, I mean, Slava has this idea of a sun diver solar sail, which actually has some technology commonalities, you know, because I, I talk to Slava a lot, and it's, it's not as different as it might seem. So we're kind of like friendly competitors here. But I wouldn't be too surprised if we get to the solar gravitational lens focus that for the solar sun diver does. Um, I mean, both he and I think Yuri Milner, um, and I don't know if you knew this, by the way, but they both went to um, Moscow University together. They were like a year apart or something, um, which gives your, gives Slava nothing now because Yuri's like, you know, up at a demigod level or something beyond him. But, but they did go to school together, and he did know them back then. Um, but, you know, they the, people want to do things in their own lifetime. You know, I would like to get to Proxy. I don't know if I, you know, I'm too old probably to do that, but I'd like to at least see it launched. Um, that seems a little more possible. Um, yeah, the best time to send a mission to Proxy is mean, 20 years ago. Second best time is now. <laughs> I mean, we as a civilization have sort of lost the ability to think in long generational terms, it seems almost like, you know, that if you think about, well, even just like 50 years ago, the Tennessee Valley Authority or something like that, which is actually not far from where I am right now, where they just came in and said, we're going to provide electricity to this whole area that doesn't have any for a bunch of reasons, including defense work and so on, but we're going to provide it and we're going to do all the infrastructure. So we're going to build the dams, but not just build the dams, we're going to build roads so you can get to these things. And we're going to, you know, you know, it's like, we're going to develop this whole thing. And I've seen some of that. So it's like, yeah, so you've got to put the power plant there, but then to get to it, you have to have a road and then you have, you know, and then to get to that road, you have to have another road and then you have to have a railroad and, you know, so on and so forth. And there's just like, okay, whatever we have to do, we do. And, you know, we'll, the payoff will come. And nowadays it's sort of like, well, if it's not like, you know, this, this presidential administration at the most, it seems like it's just, nah, we're not going to do it. Yeah. And it's always one of the challenges, even with like, with NASA, like we're going to go to the moon. No, we're going to go to Mars. No, we're going to go to an asteroid. No, we're going back to the moon. Like, like it's really tricky. Changes. Yeah, right. exactly. And so with each administration, you get like, let's shake things up. Let's, let's come up with an exciting, bold, new decision to make. And, and, and it's just really tricky to have any kind of long-term strategy. Uh, that's a whole separate, you know, I've kind of railed about that as a completely separate thing that, you know, uh, there's a there's a proposal kicking around NASA called the capabilities based framework, mm-hmm. where you just say f- we're just not going to give goals. We're just going to improve our overall capabilities with every iteration, with every mission that we do, so that more stuff becomes possible. And if at some point someone wants to commit to a long term plan, then great. We do have a deep space spacecraft. We do have a heavy lift vehicle. We do have right all that capability. We've just been building and building and building. And so you just never you always take steps forward, so that you don't have to. You know, go well, I'm old enough to another. have gone to Saturn V launches. You know, I saw four Saturn V launches, and it just astounds me we gave that up. You know, um, not that we went on and said, "Well, we're not going to do the moon anymore," but we just gave up the whole heavy lift thing. You know, we built this whole infrastructure, VAB, and all that stuff to do it, and then it was just like, "Nah, we'll do something else." 
We'll do something else, yeah. All right, so let's talk about- And like, there's always your, a promise that something else is going to be so compelling and great that you know you will forget of it, but in fact- And that's the, that's the trap. That's the bait. That uh, and so- you know, my my sort of favorite time in space exploration was the probably the Gemini era where they were they had a series of missions and each one was had a bunch of concrete improvements, longer spacewalk, let's try orbital docking, changing orbital maneuver. Like there's a bunch of things they're trying to accomplish with each one. Yeah. And I think you could you could build that to-do list that just goes on forever. And at the end of it, or there will never be an end of it. You will just be more and more capable in your in your ability to go to space. But I I want to sort of practically talk about the, your NIAC award. So so you are now you have you you luckily now have the crushing responsibility of delivering this report. So so what's your timeline and what well, are you hoping to deliver into the hands of NASA? NIAC first nine month program NIAC phase ones and. We exp- we've heard actually nothing about contracts so far, but I have been in a winning proposal before, and my expectation is that there will be a there'll be some sort of kickoff meeting in March. I was told. So, um, my expectation is is that by April or so we will have a contract, which means that by the end of the year we will have to deliver a report. And our intention is most definitely to go after and win a phase two. And we want to fly this stuff, right? I mean, that's, I don't want to do just a paper report. You know, I've done papers. I can write papers. I don't need NIAC to write papers, you know. I want to fly this stuff. And the way to do that is to get a phase two and then either a phase three or some other, you know, NASA or Air Force or whatever funding path. And so we're already thinking about, well, what do you have, you know, what's phase two going to be like? What do we plan to do? You know, what's, what's the goal there? But that's when you start thinking about, well, how do I actually make this stuff? Where do we test it? You know, could we test it in low earth orbit? Is that, you know, the ISS let us do that even, Um, you know, what would they, you know, I imagine if you put it below the ISS, so it decayed quickly, they wouldn't care if you put a thousand probes down there and they all just talked for a week or two and then re-entered you know um i don't know i mean of course elon musk is lofting these things all the time and just think how many you could fit into a starship well yeah no shit um, <laughs> but i mean i think you will one of the things that's interesting is can you use this to make radio telescopes can you use this to you know set up a swarm and then instead of photon coherence going outbound, you might say, can you collect the radio waves and then put them together and have a radio telescope that's humongous, you know, thousands yeah, of or, or bigger? And I think you probably can. And I, I mean, I know Joe Lazio, who's now at the DSN and JPL, had a proposal 20 years ago to put up little tiny spacecraft in Earth orbit to do that. And people, have, other people have talked about this. And, you know. Yep. Um, yeah, we report on I, this quite a bit. I think there are missions we could go after, right? So there's that's that's really what you, when you say what are the next steps? Well, it's to think about what missions might we do, pick a few of them that seem like low hanging fruit, work through them, and and then see if we can't go for a Salmon or one of these other NASA funding opportunities to get the thing flown and start getting the information, you know, the real world information. Okay, we flew this and we did this. And also, by the way, nowadays with one of the cool things that's changed in the last few years is we could actually do a fairly decent test with drones in the atmosphere, like in a football field or something. Just, you know, have a whole bunch of these because it's software. It's a crucial thing, right? So it's you you have the, the and communication links. So you put them all on drones, quadcopters, say, and you lift all the drones up and you have them you know talk and yeah just throw a whole bunch of frisbees yeah at the same time and then uh yeah. you know I mean, measure the communication delays uh, you know t- 20 years ago that would have been like no nah, you can't really you know you know you can't that'd be helicopters and you can't have all these helicopters together because they might collide and stuff but nowadays you know it's like really the hard part would be besides the cost of the quadcopters would be getting a proper field or range or whatever for but there's plenty of there's plenty of artillery ranges where you could do these sorts of things, so no problem. That's really that is really interesting. That like not only is the technology itself 
going, you know, coming down in price that you're really getting a sense of that smaller mission, but also just the underlying testing apparatus, your ability to make progress in that field has become a lot more accessible because of this miniaturization, this lowering yes. cost. And so, as you said, you know, before you would have to get the permission from the from the Air Force to launch your stuff on some military aircraft. And now you're just in a, in a soccer field flying drones. And well, 20 years answers. ago, these might have been 100 kilograms each. Yeah. I mean, obviously a different mission profile, but you know, you might have said, oh, I can have a swarm and it's on. Well, okay. That's again, you're in helicopters now. You're not, you know, or maybe you have a whole bo bunch of balloons or something. And then even, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been like CubeSats and okay. Uh, kilogram. So I can test them a bit cheaper, but you're still talking about a fairly hefty, you know, a thousand CubeSats might be $50 million. And that's, that's a lot of money. Well, Marshall, congratulations on Thank the Nike Award. Much. And the pressure is on. We want those pictures <laughs> of Proxima Centauri. And I know you're not completely responsible for this, just, just but you're going to play money. your part. Just send yeah, you're going to play your part, and we're all counting on you right, and thank everybody else. Thank you very else. much. I very much. I very. It was great to have a chance to talk with you again, and you know. All right. Good luck with all you do too. All right. Well, good luck with the burden of writing this report now. All right. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marshall Eubanks. Now, I'm going to give you some of my thoughts as well as some additional resources. But first, I want to thank our patrons. Thanks to Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, Monzo, George, David Gilton, Andrew M. Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. I'm always really excited by the NIAC grants, and I always sort of like find these ideas just really strike my imagination. And this one of being able to send spacecraft to another star system, of course, is exciting. But but this idea of going to Proxima Centauri, that feels like, like the, the final destination after you've been able to really mature this technology closer to home. There are so many places here in the solar system that are just poorly explored. And think about Triton, think about Io, I mean, just all of these places. And yeah, it would be great to send a flagship mission. But if you can't send a flagship, what if you could send a microprobe or a swarm of small probes that you could then fully map out the entire solar system? And once you've got a good idea of what, like what's on every single place in the solar system, then you can send more flagship missions to these other places. But we just have no idea what's around us in the solar system itself. Now, I have done another interview with Marshall, actually fairly recently, we talked about it in the interview. And so there's a link to that. And it's very similar, but we actually talk about a lot of other space technology and ideas, and as well as a sort of a different look at this same proposal. So here, you can get a link to that interview with Marshall. All right, thanks. And we'll see you for the next interview.